my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, December 14th, 2011. So I think we've got a a date for my uh, brother's brain surgery. We'll talk about that here in a minute. By the way, I do have permission to share that info with you, so we're not in violation of HIPAA. Have I told you my HIPAA knock-knock joke? Yeah, well, we'll get to that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we do the discernment work. Put those statements under scrutiny. I mean, just kind of give you a small example of what that looks like. If you follow me on Twitter, then you're aware that uh, not not very long ago, I sent out a tweet to Steve Sammons. Now, you probably don't know who Steve Sammons is, but I do. Steve Sammons is one of the executive vice presidents over there at Zondervan. And, uh, and so he's out there hunting for new authors. And he's, I think, one of the guys responsible for helping to bring Mark Batterson's new book, The Circle Maker, to market. The problem is, is that there's statements in The Circle Maker that just can't be backed up from Scripture. So let me give you a simple example of that. Steve Sammons has been filling up the hashtag CircleMaker on Twitter, you know, to help seed good comments there so that as people are buying the book, they'll go online and be part of the CircleMaker hashtag and share their positive CircleMaker prayer experiences with other CircleMaker readers at the CircleMaker hashtag on Twitter. 
<clears throat> so I saw some of his tweets today, and I decided to take issue with um, <clears throat> at least one of them, okay? And uh, one of the things that Steve Sammons, executive vice president over there at Zondervan, a Christian book publisher, he said this, quote, God isn't offended by your biggest dreams or your boldest prayers. He's offended by anything less, which is a quote from the circle maker, which I happen to have a copy of. Um, so uh, here's the deal. Um, okay, so somebody's making a claim about God. Okay, they're speaking on behalf of God saying God is like this. God is like a, a, a God in the sky who wants you to pray bold prayers, and he's offended when you don't. In other words, God is offended by, well, small dreams and unbold prayers. Hmm, that doesn't sound like the God of the Bible. So, I think, here was my thinking on this, okay? Zondervan, you know, Zondervan, major Christian publishing house, I'm sure that they have access to a Bible or two there at Zondervan's headquarters. And so I challenged Steve Sammons and basically said, so um, can you provide a single verse, just one verse from the Bible knowing that, you know, Zondervan is where he works. I'm sure he can get his hands on a Bible or two. Just give me one verse that says that God is offended by small dreams. And you can hear the Jeopardy music in the background. da 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 don't you think that's a problem that uh, major Christian publishing house Zondervan, their executive vice president, Steve Sammons, would make a claim about God that cannot be substantiated from the biblical text? That's, yeah, more than a little bit of a problem. That's a big problem. By the way, in case you were wondering, there is no verse anywhere in any passage of Scripture found in the Bible, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Maps, that says anything as preposterous as God is offended by small dreams. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, to say that God is offended by small dreams basically makes somebody feel like, oh, no, well, I don't want to offend God. I, I, I have to perform because God wants me to. I don't want to do things that are going to offend him because he'll throw me into hell. That's what's at stake here. I mean, really, this is, this is the kind of stuff that you're only one doctrine away from, at this point, totally wrecking the, doc, uh, the gospel. Why? Because you're painting God out to be an angry God. God who, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, you know. How dare you come here? You know. Yeah, that, that's the God that they're describing. It, it's like the, the, God, the, the, the man behind the curtain. He's offended. God is offended and angry by small dreams. Really? Uh -huh. So is he going to throw you into hell? If you've had a small dream, you know, well, you don't want to offend God, you know, 
It's, it's just preposterous. The Bible doesn't say anything of the sort. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. So, yeah, the, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is we take statements like that and put them under scrutiny and try to tell people, you know, who are making these claims, substantiate that. Prove it. Show me from God's word where it says God is offended by small dreams. You're not going to find a verse that says any of that because, number one, God has never said that. Number two, it contradicts his character from what you know about God just by reading the scriptures. And it contradicts the gospel itself. Anyway, so that's what we do here. Now, at the opening of the program, I said that we were going to talk just a little bit about my brother's uh, brain tumor. We uh, we finally have settled down on an official date for the removal of his brain tumor. Okay. So, um, and I have permission to share this. And the reason I have to say that is because, well, you know, this is sensitive medical information. And we live in a day where there's this rule of this law called HIPAA. And by the way, I have a HIPAA knock, jo- knock, knock joke. Are you ready? If, 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 if you've heard this already, I apologize for the redundancy. But if you haven't heard it before, and those of you who understand HIPAA, You'll you'll get the joke. So the the joke goes like this. Now I'm I'm going to say knock knock, and then you say who's there. Now I can hear you. I don't ask how. It's just the magic of the internet, and it's the magic of our technology today. So I'll I'll do the obligatory thing. You do your thing, and then I'll give you the the answer to the joke. And so that, that's how this works. So if you're listening at work, fully expect you to just, you know, play along, speak it out loud. This is a knock-knock joke. Don't be, you know, and of course, if you're listening at your home, no big deal. Um, but here, here goes. Are you ready? Knock-knock. HIPAA. I can't tell you. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Anyway, getting back to my brother's <clears throat> brain tumor. So... My brother met with his doctor today. For sure, they will be putting him uh, under the knife, opening up his skull, uh, probing around in his brain, and taking out the mass that's currently residing in his left frontal lobe. And they will be doing that on Monday morning. So if you can keep my brother Mark Rosebro in your prayers, I truly would appreciate it. Um, he, he was a little freaked out by the fact that the first doctor who diagnosed the fact that he had a mass in his brain... Um, after the diagnosis, after the MRI, the doctor began referring to to him using past tense verbs. So you, that's not a good sign. It's just want to let you all know that. So, you know, he, he was a little, um, just say moved in the wrong direction by that kind of fact. So keep my brother in your prayers. Truly appreciate it. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Wednesday, and what we're going to be doing is continuing with our series of lectures uh, presented by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, co-host of the White Horse Inn and my theology and apologetics mentor, uh, as he's been working his way through Martin Luther's uh, commentary on Paul's uh, epistles, epistle in singular, Paul's epistle to the churches in Galatia. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. All right, I forgot to move my little sticky note uh, last Sunday, so others told me we stopped just about 13. And Luther is going to make much of this one. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. That's... uh, One of the ways the Jews know that Jesus isn't the promised Christ was he ended up hanged on a cross. Uh, That's an Old Testament quotation. 
But the part where Luther's going to wax eloquent <clears throat> is that Christianity is not a religion of morals. It's a religion of rescue by substitution. Hmm? When I grew up in Lutheran pietism, I got the idea that Christianity was something uh, such that the people in it didn't do certain things. That's wacko. That's so far away from the New Testament text. It isn't defined by you don't drink anything alcoholic or you don't this or you don't that. Not at all. That's to major in minors. Um, Christianity, if it's set forth clearly, is going to have Christ at the center of it, and it's going to be about what theologians call his priestly work or his saving work, his dying. That's the center of the whole thing. So what that means was that my dad did wonderfully well by allowing me to stop Sunday school where all the lessons were headed toward some moral point. Um, evangelicalism is, is in this up to its armpits today in America. Anyway, in this, Christ gets lost. Says Luther, Jerome and a sophist lacerate this passage. They sound really pious or really profound. But Paul writes that Christ was made a curse, not for himself, but for us. And the emphasis is on for us in Latin pro me. The law of Moses says all sinners should be hanged. Christ is innocent, should not have been crucified, but bore the person of all of us sinners and thieves. So Christ allows himself to become the greatest transgressor possible due to all the sins of the world being placed on him in his own body. Isaiah 53 said he was numbered among the thieves. He received our sins, laid them upon his own body, that he might make satisfaction for them with his own blood. Um, So he's not primarily an example to be followed. He's a deliverer. He's a propitiator for our sin. Um, I, I think back to the Sunday school lessons when Christ was presented, but it was always as an example to be followed. That's to misread the New Testament terribly. Um, says Luther, to not call the Son of God a cursed sinner is to deny his crucifixion and death. He was not only crucified and died, but all of our sins were laid upon him. According to the law, every sinner must die. Therefore, Christ became the guilty one and suffered the punishment that we deserved. And it was the will of the Father and the Son that he do this. Sort of a deal made before the world was. He willed to be the associate of sinners, and says Luther, to know this is the most delightful comfort. The sophists, the scholastic Roman Catholics, segregate Christ from sinners by making him just an example or a lawgiver, worse. And it deprives us of this comfort. When you don't have that Christ takes our sins unto himself, substitutes for us, Then again, Christ becomes a judge and a tyrant to us. Uh, Luther said when he was in monastery, all he could see of Christ was that he was the coming judge and that Luther was guilty. Uh, And the charge is, it's absurd to call the Son of God a sinner. But says Luther, that misses the whole point. He was the innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was bearing our sin, whatever sins we have committed. 
they became Christ's own on the cross. And Luther says, if this isn't true, we'll all perish. It's the center of the gospel. He took our sin or bore them. Um, and Luther leans heavily on, on he bears or bore our sin. Um, the sophists mean of this to be punished. And Luther says, good, but why? It's because he's bearing our sin. And he lists off a bunch of, pa- bunch of passages. Um, Christ hanged on the cross was under the curse of God. And Luther says, this is our highest comfort, to wrap ourselves in this. Um, If we abolish our own sins by works of the law, or even by love, then Christ does not take them away. We do. If he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then we can't justify ourselves. We can't take away our sins through love either. If he takes them away, then we don't. This is the most joyous of all doctrines, Luther says. This is how we must magnify the doctrine of Christian righteousness in opposition, again, same point, to the righteousness of the law or of works. Paul's powerful argument here says, Luther, if the sins of the entire world are on that one man, Jesus Christ, then they are not on the world. If Christ is innocent and does not carry our sins, then we sins, then we carry them and will die and be damned in them. Um, he he presents it as a a great duel or a collision between death and life on the cross. Christ conquers and destroys sin, death, and the curse without weapons or battle, but by his own body and his own death conquers. Um, abolishes death, the sting of it is lost forever, it can no longer harm the simplest believer in Christ. This, says Luther, is the chief doctrine of the Christian faith. And he says it's important here, how, uh, or stresses how important the deity of Christ is in this. Only such a one who is God could do this conquering. To lose the deity of Christ is to lose Christianity. And he says, also, it's the doctrine of justification. If it's sound here, the other doctrines will be sound as well. Um, And actually, he says, to teach justification accurately is to argue for the deity of Christ. Only someone like that could be the victor over sin, death, and curse. The papist view that we somehow, by some imagined righteousness of works, fasts, pilgrimages, rosaries, vows, conquer such tyrants as Christ conquered. But this, says Luther, is the blind leading the blind. This hands us over to the tyrants to be devoured, and it makes us ten times worse sinners than murderers or harlots. Um, So with gratitude and with a sure confidence, uh, we should uh, accept this and strengthen ourselves with this sweet comfort, which teaches Christ became a curse for us. That is, a sinner worthy of the wrath of God. And then a little section on what he calls the fortuitous or the happy exchange. Christ took upon himself our sin and granted us his innocence in exchange. The happy exchange. We are freed from the law with regard to justification because Christ voluntarily became a curse for us. We're justified by faith 
alone, that is without works, because faith grasps Christ who was the victor. To believe this, says Luther, is to have it. Over and over again, it's by believing, not by doing. And it isn't just Rome, that's in us all. (coughs) It isn't just Rome. And then he has a little section, what to say and do if you are anxious and if death terrifies you and so forth. Um, The argument that Paul is presenting here, again, is against any righteousness of works. Quote, neither the law nor works redeemed from the curse, but only Christ. Uh, And he implores Christians to distinguish Christ from the law, to read Paul here with care. The first proposition, all who do not keep the law are under a curse, but no one keeps the law. Therefore, the first proposition is true. All men are under the curse. And then Paul adds a second proposition. Christ has redeemed us from the law, literally bought us out with cash, only in this case it's with his blood and death, buys us back out of slavery, having become a curse for us. So the law and works do not redeem from the curse. They drag us down and subject us to it. And the same is true with adding love to justification. That only does not redeem us from the curse, but it forces us downwards even more. But Christ is completely different from the law or from works of law. Uh, It had to be Christ himself who redeemed us from the curse of the law. Um, and so forth and so forth. And Christ is grasped not by the law or by works, but by a reason or an intellect that's been illumined by faith. The grasping of Christ is the true life, about which, he says, the sophists chatter so much without understanding. So, again, faith in Christ is all we need. Now, later on, he's going he's gonna to posit that we will live a life of good works, but he's not going to bring him anywhere near this discussion, not anywhere near it. Uh, one time he said, when you're discussing the justification of sinner or the sinner or getting into heaven, he said, remove works as far as you can from the discussion. Huh? Uh, here, the only point is Christ and his substituting and his dying for us. So again, the basic of the whole book, again, faith in Christ by itself, without anything else, justifies sinners. Who's ready to die? The one who believes in Christ. Huh? The one who sees himself as virtueless toward God, <clears throat> but who grasps Christ, who isn't virtueless, and is exactly what we need. And Luther's going to defend, just stay with that. The simplest peasant, huh? or all of us who are simple, just that. The emphasis isn't on faith, the emphasis is on Christ and his righteousness. It isn't even on our believing it. It's on Christ. Sola fide in the Reformation was just another way of saying, Christ bears our sin and wins. The one who's ready to die is the one who believes that Christ is the righteousness he needs and has done it. Just that. And you'll get resistance from every quarter on this. No matter what the label is, everybody will say, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Hmm? 
summation, all men, even the apostles or prophets or patriarchs, would have remained under the curse if Christ had not put himself in opposition to sin, death, the curse of the law, and the wrath and judgment of God. And if he had not overcome them in his own body, those savage monsters could not be overcome by any human power, we would be lost. So Christ is not the law. He is not a work of the law. He's the divine redeemer for those who have failed in the law took our sin, took the law's condemnation and death upon himself, not for himself, but for us. So it isn't enough, says Luther, to know that he was true God and true man. That's what philosophers would call a necessary but not sufficient condition. That, that's the, the necessary background, but it's not enough. Only when you believe that this altogether pure and innocent person has been granted to you by the Father as your high priest and redeemer, that he bore your sin, death, and curse, that he became a sacrifice and curse for you in order to set you free, then you're talking about justification. Where all the blue chips are bet on somebody else and not on you. All of them. Um, He speaks of uh, Paul's words, not just that subject Christ to the curse, but even that he became a curse. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5. When the sinner comes to a knowledge of himself, um, he doesn't just feel miserable, but like misery itself. And he doesn't just see himself as a sinner, but as if he were sin itself, not just cursed, but a curse itself, then he can see Christ rescuing. You know, it's sort of like hit bottom first. You know, let the law have its way with you, and you'll be utterly devastated, but it's not the end of the story. Into that situation comes the rescuer. We can legitimately apply all the collected curses of Mosaic law, not just Deuteronomy 27, to Christ. All the curses of the law were gathered together in him, and he bore and sustained them in his own body for our sake. He was not just accursed, but he became a curse for us. Says Luther, this is really an apostolic way to understand the scriptures. This is, argument is apostolic and very powerful. It's based not just on one passage in the law, but on all laws. And Paul relies heavily on it. So the proper task of the apostles was to illuminate the work and the glory of Christ. Those who knew nothing but righteousness of the law understand none of this, says Luther, or they understand in a simplistic physical way. Um, Christ, who became guilty of all laws, all curses, all sins, and all evil, stepped in between for us, for our sake, took upon himself these things for our sakes. 14. That in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come even among the Gentiles. Now, this was the offense to the Jews. Huh? They're going to get in without becoming Jews first? What, what's with that? After what we've gone through? <laughs> Major problem. <laughs> the promised blessing of Abraham can come upon the Gentiles or the nations only through Jesus Christ. Only if Christ became a curse to join himself with the accursed nations so he might remove the curse from them and bless them with Abraham's blessing. There is no other way to avoid the curse but to believe in Christ. 
We see here that we're ignorant of God, we're hostile to him, we are dead in sins, and we are accursed. Therefore, our merit, either of congruity or condenity, is nothing. The only way out is to believe in Christ and say, Thou, O Christ, art my sin and my curse. Or better, I am thy sin, thy curse, thy death, thy wrath of God, thy hell. But thou art my righteousness, my blessing, my life, my grace of God, and heaven itself. You've probably had people say it can't be that easy. Paul's hammering away, yes, it is. Yes, it is. This is, Luther is a powerful passage and filled with comfort. Paul draws the powerful conclusion that through the curse, sin, and death of Christ were blessed, that is, justified and made alive. What is ours is given to him, that is, our sin. And what is his, righteousness, blessing, eternal life, and all that, is out, becomes ours. The happy exchange, the fortuitous exchange. The human heart, says Luther, is too limited to comprehend this, and it usually reacts with incredulity. And that's true in every century. Ah, come on. Can't be that simple. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promised Spirit is the Hebrew phrase. Here Luther says the spirit is freedom from the law, sin, death, the curse, hell, and from judgment and the wrath of God. And this is received only by faith, which takes a hold of the promise of Christ. This again, Luther says, is a very sweet and truly apostolic doctrine. Generations of prophets and kings long to see what's now been revealed in Christ. How do we answer those people who pile up scriptures regarding works and rewards? Not just Roman Catholics, but almost anybody. These, says Luther, must be understood theologically, not just morally. A good work presupposes faith within the doer of the work. Luther, even were they able to entangle me, I would rather have the honor of believing in Christ alone than of being persuaded by all the passages they could produce against me in support of the righteousness of works. Now, what he does here is to say that Christ is the Lord over even Scripture itself. If you push that, there were times when Jesus spoke as if he wrote the Old Testament. He did. Uh, Those arguments uh, about the Sabbath... Look, I wrote the Sabbath. I'll tell you what I meant. It's not exactly that, but it's close to it. I wrote that. The the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, Paul says, Christ became a curse for me. And that means there was no other way I could be liberated. My works wouldn't have sufficed. And I am not convinced by your interpretation of those passages, even if you were to produce 600 of them. I have the author and Lord of Scripture on my side, and I'd rather be on his side than yours. You're stressing the servant Scripture, a few passages on works, and omitting all of Scripture's more powerful part, the rescue. 
So it says, Luther, I stress Christ the Lord, who is king of scripture. He has become my merit and the price of my righteousness and salvation. And I hold to him and cling to him and leave to you the works. Um, and this must be done. It, it's really the separation of law and gospel. You know, uh, Matthew five forty eight: become perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Holy smokes. Well, that's the Lord of scripture doing the law. Or to the rich young ruler who said, I've lived up to those all my life. And to him, not to all of us, to him, Jesus says, all right, uh, then go give away everything that you've got and come and follow me. And the man went away sad because he had much possessions. The, when somebody says, I've lived up to it, or I'm doing okay, or I'm better than my neighbor, the Latin is quorum hominibus, you should know my neighbor. Um, all of that has to go. All of it has to go. Um, so that the gift is a gift. Uh, Paul says in, uh, I think it's Romans 11, if by this, then not by that. If by grace, then not by law. Um, this is, there's no synthesis here. Paul is against all syntheses on this one. <clears throat> okay. Um, Fifteen. To give a human example, brethren, no one annuls even a man's even a man's will or adds to it once it's been ratified. Paul ad, uh, adds an argument from analogy. Human wills. His opponents. You're transferring human things up to the level of the divine. Luther admits that in general such arguments are weak. And he gives some awful examples of it by Scotus. Still, if it's based on Scripture well, then if used properly, it's valid, he says. Um, if it's not based on Scripture but just on human feelings, forget it. But Paul argues, if the last will and testament of a man is never broken or changed but always kept, how do you argue God's is to be disobeyed? When Christ died, his last will and testament was opened, and no one can change it. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. Paul now calls the promises of God a testament, a promise, um, and it refers not to a law, but to a gift. The heirs look not for laws, but for inheritances. Then Paul applies it, stressing the term offspring. To Abraham, the promises were made. A testament about a spiritual blessing was drawn and or, or ordained for him, not law or laws. If, therefore, we observed human testaments or promises, why do we not observe divine ones as well? The promises were spoken... Just a minute. The promises were spoken to Abraham, not for all Jews or for many offspring, but for one. It's a reference to Christ. In the next verse, he expands on this. This is what I mean, 17. 
the law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Sinai doesn't void the promise to Abraham. If you're talking with a Jew, once in a while you'll find one who's, if you ask him what's it, what we call the Old Testament is about, the one who's truly a Jew will say Abraham. The one who doesn't get his own Jewishness will say Sinai. I had an actuary like that one time years ago, financial or a mathematical genius with an insurance company. And we were at lunch. And I said, David, what do you think's the center of the Old Testament faith? He said, the promise to Abraham. I was amazed. You, I expected him to say Moses, and he didn't. So then it was just a matter of whether the promised Messiah had come or not. And we both knew it. We weren't going to be fiddling around with Moses. Huh? Yo. <laughs> Does Paul imagine a fellow Jew objecting God was not content giving the promise, which could not justify, to Abraham, but added something later better? The law, the doers of the law could be justified? Paul refutes it. The Mosaic law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, but it cannot abolish the promise. This is a key thing to, to this chapter. The later given law doesn't annul the promise given to Abraham 430 years prior. Luther, let's permit these two, the promise, the law, to confront each other. See which is more powerful, which abolishes which. God acted properly, intentionally, in first giving the promise long before the law, lest it be said that righteousness is given through the law, not the promise. But the law does not abrogate the promise. Faith in the promise saved even before Christ, and certainly now through the preaching of the gospel. Says Luther, there's a certain irony in Paul's use of 430 years. Here Paul is not speaking about the law in general, but about the written law. Luther, what could we say today? If Jews acquire righteousness through the law, how did Abraham acquire it? Through the law? No, the law was not yet in existence. It was 430 years later it was given. Therefore, the promise justifies and not the law. Says Luther, let's fortify our consciences with such arguments. They lead us from law and works to the promise and to faith, really from wrath to grace and from death to life. Again, the importance of distinguishing between, distinguishing between the law and the promise. And the importance of rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, if you ask a dispensationalist brother or sister, that's according to the seven eons or ages. Which covenant are you under? And the Lutheran will go, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. I think the basic one has to do with, are you reading law or are you reading promise? Which is it? Um, and don't muddle them. So, when the promise is mixed up with the law, says Luther, it becomes law, pure and simple. How to reply to lady law when your conscience is accused? Quote, lady law, you're too late. You're preceded by the promise in which I rest. You have nothing to do with me. I won't hear you. 
close quote. Or another one. I'm living after Abraham the believer, after Christ who has abrogated and abolished you. That's another nice one. Thus let Christ always be set forth to the heart as a kind of summary of all the arguments in support of faith in him and against the righteousness of the flesh, that is, of the law, works, and merit. Summary, Luther. We've set forth nearly all of the most powerful arguments Paul set forth in this epistle in support of the doctrine of justification. The most powerful argument in this letter and in Romans, it's the argument about the promise. No one can deny that the promise is not law, not the law. Paul considers carefully the offspring, that that is a reference to the coming Christ. And finally, by antithesis, what the law does, it consigns one under a curse. Uh, People who do this, says Luther, are inverting the argument. The law is used by the false apostles and applied against the Galatians, and you're volunteering to sign up for this. What you're adding to the wonderful gospel will bring you nothing but curse and death. Says Luther, that's what follows from these arguments. It was, again, an appeal to the Galatians. Don't add to the gospel I preach to you. Even when it sounds wonderful and pious, let's add circumcision, Moses, obedience, and law to complete it. Luther, uh, Paul is arguing, it doesn't complete it, it annuls it. It's either free gift or all of the curses. Nothing in between. 18, for if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by promise. Very similar to that Romans passage I quoted, if by this, then not by that. He cites Romans 4.14, Luther does, If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise void. And it can be no other way, says Luther, if the law is not the promise. It's one thing to promise, another to demand. Even our natural reason knows this much. The law demands, do this, and the promise grants, accept this gift. Accept this gift. Now, I don't want to go into free will here. Luther doesn't. We'll do that in another class. We're given the ability to accept, too. Even that's given to us. But it's not in the text here, so I'm not going there now. So Paul concludes, The blessing is given on the basis of the promise. Therefore, it's not given on the basis of the law. Therefore, he who has the law does not have enough. He does not yet have the blessing. He remains under the curse. Hence, the law cannot justify. Also, if the inheritance were by the law, God would be a liar and the promise would become void. Okay, that brings us to the end of three. Now, I have not gotten to you a kind of shortened outline of four. Uh, so let's... let's uh, have a little time for, for Q&A here on this. And uh, I'll get through Jan, get the summary outline of four to you uh, on the next Sunday. I'd rather you have it in front of you than not have it. That's my fault, not Jan's. Okay. Art? Oh, I, are you? 
Jim's going to bring a microphone over. You get the basic gist of this? It's really, it's by the promise, people, and you can't add the law back in. Uh, Doctor, uh, you said we're at the end of three. Uh, the outline, we've got verses 19, et cetera. Oh, sorry. Measure? Then I don't have it in front of me, and I'll have to fix my notes. Sorry. I've, well, I do have my computer. I can call it up here. Sorry, I didn't print it out, evidently, for myself. Everything you hear about professors is true. <laughs> I not only left my umbrella here one Sunday, and Jan got it back to me. Last Sunday, I left it again. <laughs> then I drove back on the freeway to pick it up again. This will take me a second to get to. Does the decision part of decision theology constitute a work? Sure. Very I simple. I think most evangelicals don't oh, yes. get that. I tell evangelicals that they're overlapping Rome in a lot of places and they don't believe me because they have tracts against the Pope in their churches. And I'll say, well, that's fine, but your theology amazingly overlaps with them when it comes to the tough questions. You'd be made. You would have been against us who were confessionally Lutheran or Reformed. If you'd lived in the 16th century, you would have been on the other side. Yeah. The, the Lutherans will say, it's the preaching of the gospel that creates faith in Christ in the human heart. And the gospel gets the credit, not your openness or asking. So the gospel gets the credit for faith in Christ. Um, and evangelicals differ with us on this. Their lineage is back to Wesley, and he would have sermons on free will. Now, again, when we talk about free will here, we're not talking about earthly things. The Reformers weren't interested in that. Shall I have this or that for dinner tonight? They were solely interested in the question, can we provide anything positive to our getting into heaven? And their answer was no. Now, I think in Missouri circles, I don't know what decision theology means. I'm guessing it means semi-Pelagianism. But they, I don't know what they mean because they don't define it. But I think it means some form of <clears throat> this one thing is commanded of you, but only one thing, to believe in Christ, and you've got to do it. Um, and according to the Reformers, we don't have the ability or even want to. Even that's going to have to be provided for us. If we yearn to be saved, that's been provided for us. We're already, already converted and we don't know it. You know? And it's all linked to Christ. But they'll have none of this that comes from the American scene through Wesley, that you're free in what they called heavenly things. And it would include a decision for Christ. It's similar to... Um, uh, Peter answering the, when Christ threw forth, who do men say that I am? You know, some say this and some say that. Some say Elijah. Who do you say I am? Peter confesses for the rest of them, we believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. That didn't come out of your innards. It was given to your innards. 
The thing that's really devastating to many evangelicals is how much we hate God by nature through Adam. We've got nothing like that going for us. And abilities, mm-mm, not even for that, have to be given from heaven. And Wesley would say, <gasps> that leads to predestination. And the Lutheran and the Reformed say in common, right, it does. Long answer to a short question. Rod, I, I just have to say as a longtime friend and uh, student, uh, thank you for doing this because you're truly at your finest, oh. honestly. And I think most of us in the room realize this is 200 proof great stuff. Um, but I'd like to have you comment more on this. Uh, law demands do this versus promise grants accept this. I know it kind of goes along with what you're you're saying about the decision theology, but um, uh, you talk a lot about um, Tolkien and the gospel and uh, the unbelievable nature of the gospel yeah. and, and, and how that kind of uh, dovetails with accepting this. Yeah. You know? Well, Dr. Montgomery in his Sensible Christianity series does a section and he labels it Uh, Christianity for the tender-minded. Now, he doesn't mean soft-minded. He means those who approach life in a way that those of us in the sciences don't. That is, they believe somehow that if something is true, that they'll recognize it. It'll, It'll hit something inside of them. It just won't die. And those people are not wrong. Um, and he draws heavily from Tolkien. The essay is called On Fairy Stories, and it's found in the book Essays Presented to Charles Williams, um, edited by C.S. Lewis, and Tolkien has the essay On Fairy Stories. What he says is, the essence of the fairy story has to do with Um, darkness and no hope and into that situation where there is no hope whatever unexpectedly if the writer did his work really really well comes from out of nowhere a deliverer and it's too good to be true Um, think of uh, Sleeping Beauty and the prince coming from another land to her land that was overcome by her being tricked by the witch into death and the death spread to the whole land. But the, uh, the prince comes from another land and plants on her the kiss of life and they later marry and live happily ever after. It's that prince coming from outside. Um, Tolkien coins the term eucatastrophe, the opposite of catastrophe or good catastrophe, if you can think of it that way. Um, And Tolkien said, if I can get people to want to live in the Shire, then they're ready to read the Gospel of John, where this happened in our time and space, what they're yearning for. There are people who read the Lord of the Rings every year, the way you read Scripture. They're not believers, but they're yearning for something like that and their intuition is, is telling them the truth. Um, many times these people are in the fine arts, not in physics. Um, and 
they're yearning for something and they can't imagine what it would be that would make things right. Uh, Spielberg did this one time in one story. It was like, uh, uh, what was that movie of a shot up B-17 limping home? Um, Memphis Bell, several years ago. That what, Spielberg used to have a weekly TV show called Amazing Stories. And one of those episodes is titled The Mission. And it's one of those B-17s limping home. And they're on a couple of engines at best. And they found out that the guy in the belly turret couldn't get up into the fuselage of the plane. He was trapped. And they were trying everything. One landing gear would go down and the other didn't. So they're trying to manually get the second landing gear down and it failed. Well, that meant he was going to die a pretty awful death when they came in. Somebody passed him a Colt 45 in case he wanted to blow his brains out. And what he asked for was a paper and something to draw with. He was a cartoonist. So he cartoons this wounded B-17 limping in back to the field. And at the last instant, he had drawn a kind of a balloony tire on a landing gear that, you know, was down. And at the last instant, that landing gear appeared in reality along with that balloon tire. And you didn't even see it coming. Um... Now, I don't know where Spielberg got that, but he was on to what Tolkien was talking about. Tolkien said, the four Gospels are myth, not in Boltman's sense, but these are myth in the sense of great fairy tales, and this one actually took place. Huh? The prince did come from another land, and we will live happily ever after because of what he's done. It's, I'm just repeating what Dr. Montgomery says much better in his series, uh, Sensible Christianity. Uh, Christianity for the tender-minded. Too good to be true, but this one is. This one is true. Yes? I can't help but think that some of these fairy tales were like C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories that people wrote because uh, years ago because they so parallel the Christ story. But uh, I wanted to comment something that really helped me a lot in something I read, I don't even remember where now, that the raising of Lazarus shows us the command of God to believe or Lazarus come forth and that for a dead man sure. brought him forth. Sure, sure. Um, and that's why the old Lutheran said the gospel creates faith. And Luther says as God created the earth in the beginning, out of nothing. There is no faith in the human heart. It isn't there. He has to create it out of nothing. Okay, where did we end up at verse 18, was it? Okay, well, I think it's best, since it's almost to the end of the hour. Let's keep doing Q&A, and I'll pick it up and end it there next time. There isn't a lot to go. I guess it's through, is it 21? No, it's... But I'd rather have, uh, have that in front of me, not on a screen, um, if you'll bear with me here. It may take us one more Sunday, but that's just, again, my foul-up. I didn't print a complete set. Uh, I don't want to do it on the fly. I have a more general question. I have a feeling you would, uh, you would run with it better if I just kind of put it out there. Uh, the question about decision theology brought up a question I've had from time to time. 
how, where does, where do the sacraments fit in? Because if I take it at a very simple level, mm -hmm. if the decision or the acceptance, the acceptance could be considered a decision, that's a work. And then the acceptance through the Lord's Supper and baptism could be considered a decision, especially if you're baptized as an adult. So I, mm -hmm. I'd just like you mm -hmm. to say a sure. few words about how those could be sure. viewed different ways. Let me answer with a book, first of all, and I'll confine it to baptism. But there's a very unusual book called uh, Scriptural Baptism by a Finnish man, a Finn, man from Finland. <laughs> I said this one time in the White Horse Inn, and I forget what came back, but I wasn't, I wasn't getting it across. Sarnava Sarnavara is his name, and his book, Scriptural Baptism, is an argument between a Baptist and a Lutheran on baptism. Now, I couldn't write a book like that. It is set up according to what it should be. That is, they're marshalling passages to support their positions. They're arguing. Um, in Lutheranism, it's the same gospel freely given when you talk about both sacraments. That is, the emphasis is not on, I brought myself to be baptized. The emphasis is on, the Christ who gives all of his benefits also through elements, but it's the same good news. The child is Christed, or even the adult, the adult is Christed, uh, not, to, not to his uh, credit, but to Christ's credit. Christ includes him there and later on convinces him um, in a way that's linked with matter. Uh, Lutheranism is the most empirical of all the Protestant groups, or if you want to call it Protestant, it really isn't, but we're more oriented to the flesh or to the water or to the wine or to the this, and that it's the gospel given through earthly elements. Um, Luther faced this in his own day with the, the group he called the sacramentarians. Um, and said, you're putting the emphasis on your doing and not on it being the gospel in another form. It's simply the gospel in another form. Um, baptism of an infant especially, uh, the, the elders screw up the, the temperature of the water, and the child is baptized and cries because the water is too cold. Uh, so what does he contribute to his being Christed? He cries. Nothing. Huh? Uh, it's a real picture of, of grace alone. And in the case of the Lord's Supper, uh, think of the musical Oliver, where the kid in the home, the state home, does the unthinkable when he's eaten his bowl of whatever it is. He goes back and says, please, sir, may I have some more? And the whole place goes, oh. <gasps> The, the emphasis on the Lord's Supper is the same gospel. Let me give you the same thing the pastor preached from the pulpit, only this time I'm going to give you the same thing through bread and wine. Same gospel. And you're a recipient. That's what makes a Lutheran service really what it is. We come to receive, sinners come to receive good gifts from a gracious God on account of Christ and his work. 
We don't come to be more enthused. We don't come to glorify his name adequately. We don't come to whatever. We're coming to receive that same gift again, freely and without earning it, and to be told again into our earballs, Christ's cross is enough. It will save you. Now, that's a switch in categories from the evangelical movement. I wish the evangelical movement in following Wesley would have kept some of his theology from the Church of England, but they didn't. Uh, It went another way. Where the emphasis is on you and your coming. Zwingli even said, the Lord's Supper does absolutely nothing, but it's it's a badge to your neighbor that you're a Christian because you show up at this table. It's a witness to your neighbor. And it's not trivial, but close uh, compared to what you find uh, in Luther's small catechism with what's going on here. It's all gifts to people who don't deserve them. And it's all Christ that underwrites or based on for the sake of Christ who died for you. Does that make any sense? I I guess I'm misinterpreting well, think semi-Pelagianism. I contributed my yes. I at least asked Christ into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. That's one word. Um, and the answer is no. Christ from heaven gave you a yes to himself. And he did it through the gospel. Okay. I apologize for not having printed for myself a complete set of notes. We'll finish next time, and uh, then we'll head into four, and that'll be the end of it. Uh, All all I got through was four chapters, or volume 26, during the summer. Thanks for your attention. 